Stanford University. My name is Joe Paluska. I lead the global communications and policy team for Better Place, um, which uh, the company's story begins actually in part here in Stanford. Um, we started in October 2007, but in the summer of 2007, Shai Agassi, our founder and CEO, um, enlisted the help of a handful of Stanford MBAs to help us with our uh, business plan and our modeling. So thank you, uh, and thank you for your, your colleagues for helping us with the company. Um, how, just to get a sense of the audience, how many here are familiar with Better Place or familiar with our model? Almost everyone. Great. Thank you for that, too. Um, I've been with the company since, uh, since before day one, before we uh, publicly launched the company. Uh, I met Shai in the spring of 07, and he told me this fabulous idea that he had of um, ending the world's addiction to oil and how you can do that through a, a mobility operator network that's powered by renewable energy that fuels zero emission vehicles, and how he was on the, uh, the course of raising uh, then $200 million, which was right before the crash, which was this phenomenal story um, that, uh, that caught my attention. And uh, I worked with him to figure out how we'd publicly launch um, then what we called Project Better Place uh, in, in, uh, in October 2007. So what I thought I'd do today is um, get everyone up to speed on where we stand uh, with, uh, with the company and hopefully entertain as many questions as you guys have. Um, so uh, we've done a lot in two and a half years. It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Our story, um, as you know, is uh, Shai's challenge with this question of, by the Young Global Leaders and the World Economic Forum of 2005, how do you make the world a better place by 2020? He writes a white paper about how do you run a country without oil. He shops that white paper around with a series of uh, political and business leaders around the world, enlisting uh, input from uh, people, notably um, Israeli President Shimon Peres, uh, former US President Bill Clinton, and a handful of others. And ultimately, that white paper becomes our business model and our business plan that then Shai shops around to uh, Vantage Point Venture Partners right up the street in San Bruno. And um, uh, Israel Corp, which is one of our uh, original investors, uh, a large publicly traded um, uh, holding company on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange that, ironically enough, owns the world's uh, largest fleet of oil tankers and also owns all the oil refineries in Israel. So uh, we get it funded in our Series A of $200 million back in October. And the model is pretty simple. You're trying to exploit the delta between what we call the gas mile and the electric mile. The way we calculate the gas mile is you take miles per gallon, you take the uh, price of gas divided by miles per gallon. And in the US, at $3, $253 a gallon, it's about a 10 cents ga uh, gas mile, mile versus the electric mile, which we calculate as the cost of batteries plus renewable electric electricity, which on average around the world is about six to eight cents a mile. So in the US, the, uh, the, the, the margin that we're trying to attack is that 10 cent gas mile versus our eight cent mile, which gives us an operating profit of about two cents per mile, which is nothing compared to Europe, where the price of gas is seven, seven fifty, eight bucks a gallon during the height during the height of uh, the one, when oil was $147 a barrel, you know, in places like Germany and Turkey, gas was $11, $12 a barrel. It's in part by, uh, leveraged by the price of gasoline or price of the barrel and also um, government policy. So in a place like Denmark, 
one of our first two markets, Israel and Denmark are our first two markets. Denmark, they have, um, among other policies, they have a government policy that says when you, when you buy a, a vehicle, when you buy a gas car, they're going to tax you up to 180% uh, on the purchase price of that vehicle based on the size of the engine. So if you're uh, not that smart and you're in Denmark and you decide to buy a Hummer, um, they're going to charge you 180% times that sales price. If you buy a zero emission vehicle in Denmark, there's a 0% tax on the purchase of that vehicle. So when you combine $8 a gallon gas in Denmark plus government policy that says 0% tax on zero emission vehicles and 180% tax on gas vehicle purchases, the economics become extremely compelling. Um, the other part of our story that we probably don't pay in, uh, play up enough is the, the energy side of the equation. So what, how we're working with utilities, where do we get our sources of energy and that sort of thing. So again, Denmark would probably be the best case example where um, Dong Energy is one of our partners and one of our shareholders. Dong is uh, the, the state-owned um, Danish oil and natural gas utility there. And uh, they also are the largest um, provider of wind generation. So the government policy says in Denmark, we want to have 20% generation by wind. We actually want to um, increase it to 40%. But what happens in Denmark and most places around the world is that the wind tends to blow at night or early in the morning when demand for electricity is low. So what, what Dong and other utility players in Denmark do is they actually have to either sell that energy, the wind energy at night at extremely low prices, usually around one cent a kilowatt, places like Sweden and Germany, or they actually have to ground the energy. So in our model, what we do is we harness that wind energy and we put it into the network that powers our vehicles and the batteries in the cars to become, at scale, a distributed storage model. And that then enables the utility to bring more wind or, in other places, solar online. So again, it's um, purchasing renewable sources of energy, you know, where they're available, where it's cost effective, powers our network that powers the cars. In our network, there are two ways to charge your car. The, uh, uh, the, the, the way that you're actually going to do it the most is with the charge spot. The charge spot gets the least amount of uh, publicity by the media and the least amount of attention because it looks kind of like a contemporary fire hydrant or a contemporary parking meter. And in our model, the way we calculate it is we, we estimate that roughly every, every driver is going to have two charge spots. You're going to have one at home and one at work. Why? Because most of the time, you know, when you go home at night, your car is parked and it's charging at night, or your car is parked during the day at your office and charging. It's for the, um, the, the extended trip, the trip from San Francisco to LA, from San Francisco to Tahoe, where you'll swap out the battery. And that's the part of our story that probably gets the most attention and is probably the most controversial. It's what we call the battery switch station or the battery exchange station. And so here, it's uh, where we view the battery as part of the infrastructure. It's the, the consumer doesn't own the battery. The, cons the battery is a consumable. And so um, what that means is the car manufacturers need to design vehicles that enable the battery to come in and out from underneath the bottom of the vehicle. And the batteries are our investment. And I'll show you what we just demonstrated in Tokyo about two weeks ago. 
From a consumer perspective, it also allows you um, better affordability. Because if you want to buy an electric vehicle today, you have to pay a fixed, uh, with a fixed battery, you have to pay for that battery. And that, uh, right now, the, the total cost of that battery to the consumer is somewhere between twelve dollars and $15,000. The way we view it is that the cost of a battery right now is about $500 per kilowatt hour. Um, and we believe, and so does the US government and then, uh, financial analysts, that, that the cost of that battery is going to go down to about $350 a kilowatt hour over the next five years. Again, to the more probably macro piece of our model, we, we assume the cost of oil is going to rise and, there, and that there will, that, uh, hopefully in the U.S. there will be a price of carbon. But outside the U.S. there is a price of carbon. So the price of fossil fuels and oil will rise um, over time. And that the price of battery and renewable energy will decline over time. And so it's that in widening delta and that crease in the, the, the delta that's our operating margin. So. Um, the other thing with the swappable battery for the consumer is it allows you to take that extended range drive, right? It eliminates the fear of an electric vehicle. Historically, the issue with electric vehicles is that they look like a golf cart or they have three wheels or they have limited range because they, they, you know, you're tethered by the size of the battery. If the battery can come in and out and you have a ubiquitous infrastructure that allows you to charge it anywhere you go and to swap the battery out, you can have the same freedom of range and of mobility in electric vehicle that you have with a gas car. So that is kind of our model. Um, we've raised almost $700 million to date in about a little over two years, right? To, for us, that's a huge uh, victory. It's kind of during the nuclear winter of fundraising. We've been able to raise all this money. And in, recently, that was a Series B round this past January from uh, $350 million that uh, valued us at $1.25 billion. Was, to our knowledge, it's the largest round in clean tech history. But importantly, it brought in um, large global banks. And that was from HSBC, from Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and from Lazard Asset Management, along with our Series A investors coming back in. Um, what I'm obligated to tell about HSBC is that they did their homework. They spent almost a year with us. They came in at it actually uh, hugely skeptical about the economics of the model and also the fact, you know, again, this, this notion of a battery switch and battery switch stations. And they spent almost a year doing due diligence with us. They did their own course of due diligence with us, and then they went out and hired five firms that, it's, uh, that are experts in um, uh, battery technology, in accounting, in market sizing, in cars, and had those firms um, evaluate us, and they all came back and, um, at the end of the cycle, decided to put in about $125 million of the 350, took a 10% stake, and now have a seat on our board. What HSBC, Morgan Stanley, and Lazard, along with our Series A investors, also uh, help us with is they have um, enormous relationships around the world. This is, uh, for us, it's a big ecosystem play. It's a, it's a $3 trillion market opportunity. We can't do it alone, and so we need an ecosystem of partners and of relationships in order to kind of move the big levers that we want to move to move the world off of oil for transportation and onto uh, electric vehicles powered by renewable energy. So we, um, we've had a busy April. Uh, we've had more traction in China in the past uh, 60 days than we've had in the US in the past two and a half years. And we've had more traction with Japan in the past year 
than we've had with the U.S. in the past two and a half years. Um, so even though we're located just over in Stanford Research Park by the Institute of Medicine, um, most of the time we're outside of the U.S. Um, talking to governments, talking to partners, trying to, uh, to build our networks outside of the U.S. So what I'm going to show you next is a short video. <clears throat> what, what's happening is, in terms of the milestones to watch for, is by the end of this year in, in Israel, our first market, what you're going to see is us do our first uh, full network test. So test the charge spots, the battery switch station, the software that manages um, the car, the battery, the infrastructure, and then the software that also interconnects back to the utilities to help with load balancing, among other things. Um, so what we've done is we've actually divided up our network test into a series of tests around the world. Uh, one of them being in Tokyo, where uh, we're two for two. The Japanese government has invited us in twice now as the only foreign company to help them evaluate EVs as a market opportunity. Japanese government is trying to understand uh, where the auto industry is going next and, um, and, and wants to look to EV. Obviously, with Toyota having the lion's share of hybrid technology, they're, they're viewing EVs as the, as the next logical step. Japan also wants to study our model because um, they are the third largest consumer of oil behind, Japan, uh, sorry, behind the U.S. and behind China. So they're, I think they're 95% dependent on, on oil. And they also have, in uh, most of the Japanese cities are mega cities, and so they have, um, historically have a lot of uh, low urban level pollution in addition to the CO2 that impacts climate. So what, um, what the uh, Minister of Environment and Trade have do has done in Japan is they asked us uh, about six or seven months ago to do a taxi project, um, which for us was awesome because taxis are kind of the power user segment of the auto industry, right? In, uh, in places like New York, Taxis operate 24 hours a day. It's two shifts a day. Each driver drives on average about 240 miles per shift. And those cars are the livelihood of the, both the driver and the operator. So the cars have to be constantly running. Um, the cars also uh, uh, represent about 20% CO2. Uh, and, and then obviously low level urban particulate in, uh, matter in, in cities. So if you can move the cars off of gas and onto electric, um, the cities can begin to uh, clean the cities for smog, and the drivers get a cleaner, cleaner thing. So I'll let the video roll, and then I'll kind of uh, explain what happens afterwards, and we can play it again if you're interested in seeing it. Batteries to the EVs. The batteries are charged in a temperature controlled environment, 
and that ensures safety, reliability, and efficiency of the batteries. This facility opens at uh, 8 in the morning and it goes on until 2 in the morning. And that enables the taxis to operate uh, just like other regular taxis. Well, in Tokyo, taxis represent 2% of the total cars, but they are responsible for 20% of the total emissions. So by eliminating taxi emission, we'll be eliminating a large chunk of tailpipe emissions. So if you, um, if you go to Tokyo today, uh, and if you've seen the movie Lost in Translation with Bill Murray, the, the hotel that they shot it in, the Grand Hyatt, is in Rapungi Hills. You can drive in one of those vehicles. That's a, that's a fully electric, um, in this country we call it a Nissan Rogue, but it's a Nissan Duales in, uh, in Asia. And the battery comes in and out. It's, it's, um, for me, it's super cool because we've moved off of uh, presentations into real kind of hardware and software that's in the ground. So the experience is phenomenal. Um, you get in the car. The, I was with Shai when we launched it April 26th at a press conference. You get in the car, the cars are so quiet that, that we could whisper in the back seat and have a conversation. It, it's, it's stunning how quiet the cars are. Um, the technology itself, we engineered and designed the entire battery switch station, but we contracted with a very large um, Japanese uh, industrial company to install it, uh, a name that I'm not allowed to tell you who it is, but you would recognize who they are. And um, we also partnered with uh, Nihon Kotsu, which is the largest taxi operator in Tokyo. So these are real live cabs with real live taxi drivers, with real live paying passengers going into them. There are three cabs in Tokyo. We'll run a 90-day project. For us, it's a development cycle. We're trying to learn as much as we can off of um, user behavior with the drivers in particular because they have a small meter uh, or monitor in their cabs that show the level of the battery and uh, some other diagnostics, diagnostics on the battery themselves. So you know, uh, mentally, are they going to be compelled to want to go and switch out that battery when the battery hits 80%, 70%, 60%? Kind of when do they think they need to, to swap out the battery? When we go to full scale, um, all that will be automated so you won't have to worry about when it's changed the battery. But we're just trying to understand just some human behavior around it. There's a ton of data off the, the batteries themselves. What um, I've probably learned more about batteries than I care to, but what, what I've learned is that every battery uh, is unique. It's almost like every battery has its own unique uh, fingerprint or uh, DNA. So the way you, um, you charge the battery, right? The battery is the most expensive asset in the vehicle. So you want to, um, the, the kind of the care and feeding and the charging of that battery has to be optimal and has to be under uh, optimal conditions. So what happens is the cars will pull in, the, ba the depleted battery will come out. You saw the robot take the battery away to a battery storage uh, facility right next to the, um, the lane, the switching lane. And what happens there is that that's uh, a temperature controlled environment where then we can take another um, uh, evaluation of the battery and the battery diagnostics, charge the battery under optimal conditions. It takes about 30, 35 minutes to, to recharge uh, a 24 kilowatt hour battery to um, full state. And then that battery is ready to go again. This is the, the major test for us, a major milestone. We've split kind of the network testing in two. 
The second piece of it is underway in Copenhagen in Denmark. We launched it back in, um, uh, in December in time for the UN Summit on Climate Change, the COP15 Summit. And there we're testing the charge spots and how they charge fixed battery vehicles. So we have about 50 charge spots deployed throughout Copenhagen, charging a variety of fixed battery electric vehicles from Renault, Fiat, I think we have two Teslas there. Um, and those kind of two tests will continue over the next couple of quarters. All that uh, learning and actually the, the infrastructure itself is uh, in Israel right now. All of that is also being tested in Israel so that by the time we get to the fourth quarter of this year, um, all of the components will be in the ground on a limited scale. We'll bring in about 10 uh, Renault vehicles with swappable batteries to do the first end-to-end -end network test. And then we'll scale up, scale up again, and work out all the bugs as we go to full commercial launch in both Israel and in Denmark in the second half of 2011, which is when Renault, our car partner for Europe, is bringing in the cars. We'll go to China now. So China, um, we've, we, uh, again, we're a very young company. Um, we've only done two car shows in our, uh, in our history. And um, the first one was the Frankfurt Motor Show from, uh, from last September. And the second one was this past April, so last month, um, is uh, Beijing Auto, Auto China in Beijing. Huge, huge show. Um, but the, the thing you need to understand about China is uh, about nine or ten months ago, they set an industrial policy that uh, if you kind of follow the category, shocked the world. They set an industrial policy that says they're going to be the number one manufacturer of EVs by 2015 at 500,000 500, units a year. Um, they are, they've set uh, um, uh, an incentive for the purchase of vehicles by, right now by fleets and by government owners of about uh, $8,800 for the incentive. They've told their 13 largest cities to prepare for EVs on the infrastructure side and for the production. They have primarily 10 large uh, domestic automobile manufacturers. They've asked those automobile manufacturers to both consolidate but also to begin to develop uh, EVs. Um, so they, you know, they're, they're going to be 65% dependent on foreign oil import, imports by 2020. You've, if you've been to Beijing or any of the large cities, you see the pollution in those cities. So they see um, EVs as a, a level playing field. There's no baggage with the 100-year-old internal combustion engine, so they can drop their addiction to U.S. technology. They can end their addiction to Japanese hybrid technology, and they can end their addiction to European diesel technology by going straight to EV. What does China do best? They do manufacturing best and they do consumer electronics best. So what they're doing is they're taking what they do best and put it into electric vehicle, electric vehicle infrastructure. Um, HSBC, as I mentioned, is one of our investors. We asked HSBC to run the numbers on global market share and forecast out um, who the winners and losers are going to be. They, right now, uh, China has about 3% of the global EV market share. Keep in mind the global EV market share we could probably count on my two hands in this room right now, and two of them are at Tesla, and three of them are at Better Place right now. Um, it's a very, very small market, but uh, what HSBC says is that by 2016, China will overtake Japan for a global lead of the EV market, and by 2019, 
China will overtake the U.S. for leadership of the global EV market. So that by 2020, China will have 30% of the world's global EV market share. Um, they, uh, so, they, so they have a large auto show that we participated in because we signed uh, an MOU with a company called Cherry Automotive, Cherry, Cherry with one R. Um, Cherry is the largest independent brand in China for automobiles. They are also the largest exporter of, uh, of um, cars. Uh, for example, if you go to Santiago, Chile, they make a lot of the, taxi the gas taxi cabs that are driving around in Santiago. Um, so what, what uh, we announced is that we're going to work with Cherry to, uh, to develop uh, switchable battery electric vehicles for both domestic China uh, production and consumption and for export. Um, probably all of you are skeptical about China uh, in terms of quality of services and, and uh, technologies. But when you go there and see what's going on, they are improving, right? You'll see in one of these slides um, that um, Beijing Auto, or B, it's, the acronym is B-A-I-C, or it's pronounced Baichi. Um, Baichi acquired from Saab, as GM was selling Saab at the end of last year, Baichi acquired the, the old Saab 9.5 and 9.3 platforms. So if you drive a Saab 9.5 or 9.3, um, a Chinese company now owns that platform. So we are working with, uh, while we haven't formally announced it, we're working with Baichi on the Saab 9.5 and 9.3 platforms to make them fully electric with swappable batteries in and out. So let me just show you a couple of highlights. Um, Cherry has a number of brands, uh, and one of the brands is, is Rich with two eyes. Um, I think they did Cherry with one R and Rich with two eyes because they probably couldn't get the URLs for that. Um, but here, this is a, um, a, chair, a rich G5. It's a four-door, five-seat sedan, where this is just a concept car. Um, but this is one of the vehicles that we're going to be looking at to develop for um, elect fully electric with swappable battery. So again, it's just another um, photo of it. So we were part of the Cherry booth. We had um, the demonstration vehicle with, with our battery swap underneath, and we also had our charge spots and then some other, we have a charging tower on the side here. And again, this is just a photo of our, um, of our charging infrastructure. This is, uh, this is the old Saab 9.5, right, which they now call the C71. And what they've done is they've storyboarded out below the, the battery switch technology. And then what they did was they modified, for the show, they modified a Saab 9.5 um, with our help to uh, put the battery underneath. So here there are some mirrors so you can see underneath the vehicle. And this is looking down at the mirror. But they've put, this is their battery and their latching system. And with the, with the Saab platforms, the Saab platforms are um, European and US safety and standard tested. So the point is that if we all are skeptical about the quality of Chinese products and manufacturing and services, they're buying non-Chinese technology to leapfrog and get them up to where they need to be, as well as developing and improving their technology. They fully get it. They fully, fully get it, and they get the, both the market opportunity and the environmental uh, benefit of electric vehicles. 
And they are running as fast as hell to do it, to be the market leader, because they view it as a, as a level playing field. We, um, we were able to uh, host a number of um, Chinese dignitary. The first is the uh, vice premier, but um, somewhat a little bit more meaningful is the mayor of Beijing. Beijing will probably be one of the first markets that we roll out uh, a pilot program in. And then what you'll see in the next ser series of slides um, is that the, obviously the theme of the show, or maybe not obviously, but the, the theme of the show is around electric cars. And what you're seeing is that everybody, both the Chinese domestic manufacturers and the foreign manufacturers are showing electric cars. The, uh, you're probably very familiar with the electric mini and also the Nissan Leaf. And what you'll see with this, um, this is actually the IAT is, um, is kind of a tier one vendor in China. And you'll see that they've also um, developed a battery switch technology. Surprised to see IAT, the photo's not tremendously good, um, but they have, a they have a concept car with battery switch and then they have a storyboard around battery switch. So in China, you had three domestic automobile manufacturers or two automobile manufacturers and a, and a components provider show battery switch technology. So we're thrilled. <laughs> so that's, that's where we stand. We go live in Israel and Denmark late next year. We're still testing the network. We'll fully test it at the end of this year. Um, we've got these really exciting projects for us uh, running around uh, outside of the US. Inside the US, we'd like to see more action uh, by both industry and by the US government. Um, I'm not uh, hopeful on today's news about the climate legislation introduced, um, but we'll see how it goes. So with that, I'd love to take any questions that you have. Sorry. Yeah, so you quoted, um, you hope to get to $350 a kilowatt hour for your cost of batteries. Um, to, suit, to get to a 100 mile range, uh, so you've got to end up somewhere in the zip code of uh, 30 kilowatt hours of uh, storage. You can't use 100% of what battery. So you end up with a capital cost of your battery in excess of $10,000. So if I divide that by useful life, let's say 100,000 miles, which strikes me as a little bit large, I get to a 10 cents a mile cost just for the battery. And you have to pay cost of capital, cost of labor, switching stations, etc. So how do you get to the six to eight cents a mile? So the so 24 kilowatt hour battery gets us a hundred mile range. So what was our assumption? The bat our assumptions on our models are two hundred thousand, it's two thousand cycle battery, so two hundred thousand miles per battery and about $500 a kilowatt hour. That still strikes me as well, six, seven cents, including the cost of capital. Uh, right do, do you mind identifying where you're from? <laughs> Are you a venture capitalist as well, or no? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm happy to go over the numbers with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in PR, I don't. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to ask, okay, so where's the electricity come from to fuel this vehicle fleet in Beijing? It's going to come from, from dirty sources, right? Okay. 
But if you so but if you look at the American Lung Association, environmental impact while it may be more efficient in terms of the electric drive, it seems to me there's another side of the equation that that's the development of a better, cleaner electricity network in China deserves perhaps even more investment and more energy. You could argue that running the cars on natural gas and making this equivalent investment in cleaner electricity for the rest of the country might offer the same environmental benefits. Uh, that, but that's not our business model, right? We're, in, we're enabling the investment. You're absolutely right, but we're enabling others to come in and make those investments. Our model is about the infrastructure that enables the cars. And so we want to bring in additional partners that make those kind of investments in clean, in clean power plants. And by the way, if you look at the studies, if you look at, um, uh, we've got, well, obviously, we've got Israel Electric Corp and uh, Dong Energy, but you also there's some US studies out of Pacific Northwest Labs that talk about the impact on the grid. You'll, you'll see that, that if you do, it's the intelligent charging part it's the software that, that helps basically um, balance the load between the aggregate of the cars and the, and the utility. There's, there's minimal impact on, on the grid. Yes? Hi. Um, I want to know uh, uh, a, a normal battery pack uh, probably went about 100,000 miles. And uh, especially the fast charge, memory 3, 400 volt, 125 amps, you're probably using that. Uh, to charge the batteries, it even degrades faster. So it's probably, let's say, 80,000 miles. So, um, so you have all these uh, batteries that degrade so fast. How are you going to dispose them? And also, uh, with the battery technology advances, mm -hmm. you not only have to stop the old, the old, uh, old style of battery, like uh, lithium-ion, you have right. to stop the new one, like lithium-air or maybe nanowire, so, uh, so it could go into a really big mess. So, <laughs> it could be. Um, so on the so on the bat so on the battery chemistry, we think that lithium ion is going to is going to be the the horse to bet on for some time. So lithium lithium zinc air lithium uh, other chemistries are are future technologies. On the degradation of the battery, keep in mind. Most of the char this is the part that gets lost, I think, on most people. Most of the charging is trickle charging or standard charging at home or at work. It's only for the extraordinary drive or the, or the, the, um, the long drive when you have to switch out the battery that then the battery goes into the switch station and does get um, not fast charge, quick charge, right, about 30, 35 minutes in a temperature-controlled environment and in an environment where we know the history of that battery, and so we know what, how much energy to put in and, um, and, and we're able to monitor it. So, so I think the, your assumptions on, um, your assumptions are right that we're gonna need a lot of batteries, but probably not as many as, as you think. Well, how are you gonna dispose them? Yeah. No efficiency. Well, so there's second life, you, se so there's a lot of research on second life applications, whether it's in the home or, other, or in utilities or in the grid. Um, our partners, we're, we're somewhat battery agnostic. Our partners are uh, A123 out of Boston and um, a joint venture between Nissan and NEC called a, uh, AESC. And through them and through our own means, there, there are green supply chain initiatives 
and that's how we recycle the batteries. Sorry. Um, are you moving in the direction of open standards for battery design, and anybody, including competitors, can participate in that? Absolutely. Yeah, we, um, there's a woman named Ziva Patir, who's on our global team but works out of Israel for us, who is our uh, standards expert. So we participate on um, SAE and uh, ISO and all of the international standards bodies. What we found is there, globally there's kind of two camps, right? There's the car guys and the utility guys, and we're in between. So it's, it's, um, it's a fight to be able to um, provide our perspective into those two camps. But you're seeing, at least on the charging, on the charge, uh, on the plug itself, there are uh, around the world there are broadly two, two standards, right? There's kind of the European standard and there's the North America Japan standard. Ultimately, there'll be one and it'll probably be developed out of China and the rest of the world have to adopt it. Sir. But the fact that um, some automakers may want to have proprietary, not battery chemistry designs, but battery pack configurations for their own uh, purposes. And so you may see not a proliferation of chemistries, but of battery pack configurations. Does that affect your model in any way? Yeah, it does. It, um, the way we think about it is that um, the car manufacturers and the battery manufacturers ultimately will come up with uh, a standard or several standards for vehicles or for batteries. So much like if you go to a gas station and you have different grades of octane, right? We're, we believe that there'll be um, ultimately four or five, six kind of form factors or standards of batteries that all the car manufacturers will share. It, it's early days right now, so, so you know, if you take Renault and Nissan, right, they share the same, same CEO, they have cross equity ownership, they in fact share the same battery supplier in AESC, but the form factor and the size of those batteries that, that Renault's using in their vehicles versus the Nissan LEAF vehicle are completely different. What kind of our um, simple criteria is, the battery has to come in and out from below the vehicle. And logically, from design perspective, it makes a lot of sense, but that's what we're, um, when, we, when we speak to car manufacturers, that's, that's kind of our opening point. Sorry. Well, that's, that's why we picked both Denmark, a cold environment, and usual a hot environment to test the cars. Um, for, uh, so for Renault, for example, um, they, what they determined probably two years ago is they're gonna take this uh, C-Class sedan platform, but they didn't wanna modify it so that, um, the, so that you could put a, basically a pancake-style battery so it could simply come in and out. So what they had to do was um, extend the, the rear of the, the vehicle a bit so that the battery actually looks more like, uh, like an, uh, an L on its side. So that part of the battery comes up behind the back seat um, and then the rest of it comes in from underneath. The future, of uh, the next generation of vehicles that Renault is designing that uh, I can't go into much detail, they're, they're moving to kind of that pancake style battery that's gonna come in underneath so that they don't either have to extend the platform or the chassis of the vehicle uh, and potentially lose the trunk space in the back. And you have to 
you have to condition the battery uh, with um, the heat and air. Uh, yeah, there's there are certain uh, both software things that we're going to do to the battery, but also um, uh, through air and other means to to cool the battery and to heat the batteries in those in those conditions. Does it take more energy? Is that more? Um, uh, Does it drain the battery? Yeah, is that more of a drain than having it behind the back seat like it is now? Or it's, is, that, is that better for it? Which way? Below the car. Is that more? It's a more efficient way for for the for a consumer experience and also for the design of the car. You're welcome to come over and see us anytime. I'll go to you two, please. Um, I was wondering, uh, how are you how do you plan on dealing with the cost of upgrading the electric infrastructure locally near charging points and charging stations, and how do you see splitting that cost with utility companies or uh, Secondly, if you have an operations research team yet to analyze all the data that you're collecting. Are you graduating soon? <laughs> um, so on, on the operations research team, uh, we do. Um, but you can send me your information, and we'll take a look at it. Um, sorry, what was the, I got sidetracked by the appeal for a job. <laughs> how, how do you plan on managing the uh, Local, uh, oh, the upgrades to network, right. So, um, so the, first of all, the, the cost is our cost. So it, um, on the consumer side, it's a little bit like the DirecTV model, right? If you want DirecTV satellite service, there's a truck roll, DirecTV comes out, puts the dish on your home, and you pay for the monthly subscription, right? There's an embedded cost of that satellite dish, but you, you as the consumer aren't paying it up front. It's baked into the monthly subscription fee. So on the consumer side, that's um, on the, actually on the whole infrastructure side, that's, that's, our, that's our model. On, um, on what I would say the public charge spots, what we've, we've learned a lot in two and a half years. Um, I think originally we thought there'd be more of a mix between uh, consumer and um, kind of corporate campuses and public charge spots. But what we're realizing is that you need uh, Few, um, fewer public charge spots. You need more charge spots at the home and in the office and in some retail locations. But it's not like uh, you go down to University Avenue in Palo Alto and um, you're going to need um, charging spots. Because what we've also learned is um, when you, when you, anytime you have to dig, right, it's a no-brainer. If you have to dig, that's an enormous cost. And so we don't want to have to dig to put in the charge spots. We're looking for how can we rapidly deploy, how can we rapidly wire parking lots and rapidly wire homes without having to dig? With, with the utilities, it, again, it's on the upgrade to the, to, to the infrastructure. Um, what I would urge you to think about is, again, software. Software manages most of the load, right? It manages both the distributed load and then the central load that's back at our data center. So the um, the, the research that our utility partners have done is that there's little investment needed either on the generation side or on the grid side. Obviously, every grid is local and unique, but based on uh, what we've seen in Israel, Denmark, Australia, and then the research we've seen out of the US, you know, it's not a cost prohibitive, prohibitive um, hurdle to cross. Okay. Um, are you looking at maybe uh, distributed generation for where 
instead of taking up power lines and upgrading the whole system to like uh, all the way to a substation? We've thought about it. Yeah, we've talked to, um, if you're familiar with SunTech, you know, SunTech is local, but they're, they're out of China. You know, we thought about what if um, you could wire, you know, the Google parking lot, you put solar PV, wire that, and then it goes right into um, the charge spots. But we've not developed that technology, or developed that kind of integration yet. Okay, yeah, my question is actually very similar. So, but it's more regional specific to Beijing. As you may or may not know, the, the grid in Beijing is actually maxed out at the moment. So, uh, and you said you, you will put a test pilot project in Beijing very soon, and what are you going to do about it? And although they are upgrading the grid right now, it may not be in place for you have your pilot project. Yeah, the, so the pilot projects will probably be similar in scale to start with as the Tokyo project. So, you know, 90-day proof of concept where the impact will be minimal on the grid. But you're right, as it scales, um, that's where we're going to need uh, investors and other partners and the Chinese government to help out. So you're actually working with the investors to implement yeah. this Yeah, HSBC, as you probably are aware of, Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank. So they are uh, kind of true experts in all things China. Sorry, sir, I took one from you. Hi. Um, how, how, can you talk a little bit about the vehicle to grid type of scenario? And are you, do you have any kind of business model around arbitrage or electric prices and such? Not on the arbitrage per se. Um, for, I mean, first of all, on vehicle, vehicle to grid, we think that's a technology that's at best five years away. So it's probably, you know, five to 10 years away. Even though you have these. Battery charging stations with all this battery storage. It's around. just, it's not, it's not, we don't believe it's mature technology yet. So pro you're probably right. By the time we get, um, we'll, we'll be, the, we'll have a countrywide networks in Israel and Denmark at the end of next year and then additional infrastructure in 2012. So probably by the time that everything is scaling in say three, four, five years from now, that technology will also be maturing and we'll look to incorporate it in. And, but on the ancillary services side, back to the utility and the revenue that we generate from that, we, we're definitely looking at that component um, right now. Sir. So I might be able to clear up how you would be paying back investors on what it looks to be like a pretty capital-intensive situation here. Well, it's a great question. <laughs> it's not, um, so if you take vantage point, for, for example, are you, are you from a venture capital <laughs> firm? <laughs> All right. um, if you take Vantage Point, they, um, they would admit it's an unusual investment for them, right? They're definitely taking a long-term view on it. Um, if you talk to Alan Salzman, the CEO there, you know, the, the, the industry transition is a 10 to 15-year transition. But what they've seen in our model is that um, the, when you look at the the cost to both put in the infrastructure and to power the infrastructure relative to this thing called oil, right? And that there is no, there are no competitors to oil on transportation, in effect, right? It's a blanket statement, but oil, oil largely has 100% market share around the world for transportation. So we're going after that kind of fat profit by coming in with a cheaper, more convenient, affordable solution on um, HSBC, for, by, by contrast, to, you know, Vantage Point in a, in a classic Silicon Valley VC and HSBC in probably the world's largest bank, 
HSBC looks at us as what they call a transformational investment. So they, they look at us for what we do as um, the returns that we provide as a standalone company, but they also look at us as enabling either other new companies or other traditional companies to profit from this transition to electric transportation. And so while their investment right now is just in us, they look at us as kind of the spark for other future investments or, you know, they, they're invested in, uh, in PSA, you know, the owners of Peugeot and Citroen, right? So they're going to their, um, their institutional investments and saying, hey guys, why aren't you going faster to electric? So it's, it's, it's um, I, I don't know if that explains the mindset, but they, they've seen the light and the light is, the future is electric mobility and they see us as um, having a unique, unique uh, differentiated um, position in the market, both for us as a standalone company, but also what we do for the broader industry. And that's what they're playing on. Gentlemen. What's your barrier to entry? Because you were talking about IAT has got a battery switch technology. What keeps you from spending all this money to test it and then somebody else just comes in and does battery switch technology? I think our CEO would uh, argue that that's a good thing because the, the company's publicly stated mission is to end oil. And so if we end oil because others, because the Chinese have come in and taken all of our technology and scaled it and then now are selling it to the rest of the world in 10 years and that, that uh, ends the world's addiction to oil, Shai would say, we won. <laughs> um, but from, a, from our venture capitalist view, <laughs> And from an employee shareholder view, <laughs> and from an employee shareholder view, um, the, there are multiple barriers to entry. One would be that um, while we were public about this idea uh, early on, um, we, we have studied the hell out of this thing, right? We have, re, we have done, you know, because more than 10,000, you've heard the benchmark of 10,000 man hours gives you competitive edge. We've done many, many more than 10,000 hours of, uh, of research and development on this thing. Um, again, let me go back to HSBC. HSBC, um, in their due diligence, looked everywhere around the world for somebody that was coming up with something similar to us, and they couldn't find anything. And they put their money in. We, we've not yet seen anybody like us. We think we were helped by the downturn in the economy, um, the, way, you know, the way Shai likes to describe it is, you know, if somebody had a carbon copy of our uh, business model, our PowerPoints, and our CAD cams and stuff, they would still have a hard time raising $200 million in this environment, in this economy. So the downturn in the economy kind of killed or at least um, put on hold any of the small competitors who think they could do something similar. The downturn in the economy and the and decline in the price of oil also caused all the oil companies to put on hold drilling and investments in alternative energy. And, it, and same with the utilities, right? And now everyone is kind of coming back to life now that oil is back to $75, $80 a barrel and the, oil, and the, the economy is slowly coming back to life. Can we take one more question? One did you have? I did. Uh, you quoted a figure of 10 cents per mile at $3 a gallon gasoline, right? But about a third of that $3 is tax, which we might hope the government uses for road tax. So my question is, 
did you include that three cents per mile in the electric car as well? No. When we do our apples, when we do our back of the envelope comparison for um, for engagement like this, it's it's a simple. We try to get as simple as possible on the gas mile versus electric mile, but we have a more detailed model that calculate that takes into fact, um, subtracts tax or adds tax in depending on what market we're in. Sorry, sir, you're anxious. Um. The previous speaker here, at UC Davis professor, said that he had a hard time understanding how you're going to make money off of residential customers if they're now charging 90% of the time at home. I mean, it's obviously value in the price per mile of an ice car, gasoline, and the electricity. What makes you confident that you're going to, you know, they're going to want to pay that money to you instead of, you know, just charging 90% of the time at home and just occasionally? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is. Um, uh, we're not an electric reseller, right? We're not a utility. We don't just sell energy. We sell, we, we have not disclosed fully, but we sell a package of mobility services that includes access to the whole network. So you're not just buying energy. If you just want to buy energy, then just buy a plug-in and go home and plug-in and buy and pay the utility. So what you're going to see from us probably in the fourth quarter of this year is, is, um, uh, is us articulate for the first time more of the consumer proposition and what you would get as, as that consumer. We also think in a market like the Bay Area, um, there, there, you know, the, this, this area has a, a desire to be green, right? People will pay a premium to buy a Prius. People will pay a premium to be green. And so if we're offering a fully green um, consumer driving experience, they're going to pay for it, we think. And we've done actually consumer studies, proprietary research, um, uh, not proprietary, um, primary research using uh, Ipsos out of Paris, where we studied our five kind of key markets and asked consumers, I think 160 questions about EVs. And um, probably the bottom line is, I think most people would probably think that EVs are, are for tree huggers. What our research finds is that they cross every um, demographic scale. It's, it's both kids, adults, um, moderate income families, wealthy families, across all the five markets. And, and really one of the drivers is how much education has done, been done either by the government or by industry or by the media on EVs that they, they have a better concept than, you know, it's a golf cart. Please, please thank uh, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.